All righty. Welcome to another episode of Weight Room Overtime. As you can see today, we have a special guest, my former coach at Eastern Oregon, um, Stan Rodriguez. How are you guys doing today? What's up? How are you? How are you, Joe? Good, good. Um, you know, thank you for taking the time today. I know it's kind of short notice, but um, I think we good. have some great information that we can uh, put out for yeah. young athletes, coaches, and, you know, any soccer fanatics out there and, and stuff like that. So, for sure. Stan, where you, uh, where you at today since, you know, you left Oregon? Uh, well, right now, during the pandemic, I'm back in Oregon. Uh, we have a house here at right, right behind Eastern Oregon University, as a matter of fact. Uh, but my current position is the men's uh, assistant coach at Cal State Dominguez Hills. Uh, we're Division II school, two-time national champion, uh, four-time finalist. Um, so we have a, a, we're part of the CCA conference, uh, probably the toughest conference in the nation, or at least what one is, of, What is the CC, CCA? CCA is a California Collegiate Athletic Association conference. Uh, so basically it's like um, everything from Sonoma State, Humboldt, down to Cal State San Marcos. I mean, there's quite a bit of schools in there, um, yeah. and they're all pretty heavy hitters. For example, Cal State LA last year was a national finalist, and they lost mm -hmm. uh, a school from West Virginia, or Charleston, I'm sorry, Charleston. So, I mean, it's, it's a very competitive conference. Um, it's ranked highly in the RPI. Um, so it's a tough, it's definitely a tough conference. And it's something that I was looking forward to ever since my days at Eastern Oregon. Oh, nice. So Stan, tell us a little bit about your history because I think it's pretty interesting compared to the normal, I guess, collegiate yeah. soccer player or even yeah. pro. Um, yeah, so, tell us a little bit about kind of yes. where you started, how you ended up, you know, coaching. Oh, man. Uh, I started like everybody else. I grew up in Los Angeles uh, playing soccer, had a lot of family that played soccer. My background's Guatemalan and Portuguese. Um, but when I turned about 13 or so, my parents moved me to Oregon in a very, very rural spot, uh, spot of Oregon at Terrebonne, which is outside of like Bend, Oregon, by 20 miles uh, north of Bend. Um, started playing soccer there, was not developed. Um, at the end of my senior year, I decided I wanted to try to find a place to play. Um, it was very difficult coming out of a school that really wasn't known for its soccer. Um, mm -hmm. I went on to play junior college soccer at, uh, at two different junior colleges, which I was really proud of. One was Lane Community College in Eugene. The other was Central Oregon Community College. Luckily, from there, I traveled around to try to get on squads. I moved mm -hmm. to New York for a, uh, something outside of soccer. And then I found a team that was playing in La Liga Nacional uh, the, of New York, which is a very, very popular league at the time. A lot mm -hmm. of pros, former pros from other countries were in it. I was the youngest guy in the league. Um, and then all of a sudden, I got a phone call one day in 96 uh, and a flyer that said, hey, come try out for the San Jose Clash. Someone had saw you in New York, come out there. Yeah. Um, in all fairness, I went to try out for the San Jose Clash, open combine. Uh, 1,400 people showed up, uh, made the first cut down to 100. They brought in the pros the next day and they only took two. So on the way home, uh, from that opportunity, I already had a son. I had a son at 19. My younger brother, who's 11 and a half years younger than me, um, says, you know, I was pretty depressed, not going to lie. I couldn't get on anywhere. I've played in Guatemala, Mexico, everywhere. I couldn't get on. Finally, uh, my brother goes, why don't you just start coaching? And I thought it was a joke at first. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm never going to coach. He's like, you coach me, you'll be fine. Uh, luckily for me, my brother became one of the top 100 in the nation. He really became a very strong player, made the U.S. national pool at the ages of 14, 15, 16, um, traveled to Costa Rica and all these things. Well, when he got really popular in Oregon, uh, people said, you know, who's your coach? Who's your coach? And he always gave me credit. So I was known as Mikey's brother for a long time. 
Uh, yeah. Luckily, I uh, moved to Portland. I coached high school uh, in Bend. I was an assistant coach there. We won the state title in 1999 at Mountain View High School. And then I moved on to Portland, got on with a club, uh, Westside Metros, or Westside Metros now is Westside Timbers. I had met a wonderful man named Connie Constant who became my mentor. Uh, one day out of the blue, uh, I just told him, he asked me one day, what do you want to do, man? What do you want to be? I said, I want to be a coach. Uh, I said, I know it sounds crazy, but I want to be a college coach. And he goes, what are you going to do to do it? And I said, I really have no idea what there is. I don't have a pedigree. I, I, you know, I played at junior college, men's leagues. I don't know what to say. Um, and I even won a Southern California, a Southern California men's title in uh, a Premier League out of a club down there, which had, you know, we had pros in there playing. It was great. Uh, but still no real pedigree. And then he said, well, I'm going to give you a five-year plan. And I did it in seven. I went back to school, got my bachelor's, got my master's. I coached my first junior college in Vancouver, Washington. I coached the women's team, started coaching the WPSL for women. Um, and then I got, I got really strong on the women's side for a long time. I thought that was going to be where I was going to start coaching, just start mm-hmm. coaching college women. I ended up coaching college men, Eastern Oregon. Um, Jesse Watson, who is now the head coach at Eastern Oregon University, uh, gave me a phone call one day and said, hey, they're looking for a coach out here. Why don't you apply? Prior to that, I had 269 rejection letters from, a, from jobs that I had applied to. So it was, it was oh, pretty wow. brutal. It was pretty brutal. And then finally I said, okay, I, I'll try. And uh, I, I got my interview. Um, it turned out to be, you know, very uplifting. Uh, my wife was ride or die from the very beginning. She kind of pushed me to take the job because I was kind of nervous. I was leaving everything I knew, I knew and, you know, Portland, yeah. my club and everything. And then I got the job at Houston, Oregon and, you know, got you guys to come down and play for me. And <laughs> at the end of the day, it was all history, you know, and uh, I was very blessed to be at Houston, Oregon for the couple seasons I was there. And, but I've always wanted to do more. I wanted to be in the right. NCAAs. I wanted to chase more. I wanted to learn more, um, you know, uh, and luckily, I got those opportunities um, very quickly, a lot quicker than probably what I expected. And in a way, it's been great. In another way, it, it hurt me a little bit. But at the same time, um, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't change anything that I've done to because I'm happy where I'm at right now. It's like your own little path that you made for yourself. Yeah, yeah. So tough. What What would you say would be the main, I guess, major difference between a school like Eastern Oregon and obviously the school that you're at today? Obviously, it's a different conference, different people, different coaches. What would you say is the biggest change besides the location, obviously? But Well, NCAA, you know, the first thing that it took me a while to get used to was the rules, right? So NAI, mm-hmm. it's like the wild, wild west. You can bring in guys that are, you know, all over the place, international, all over the world, different things. Yeah. Uh, budgets, budgets were also very different. Um, but, you know, recruiting and everything else is, is different only because, you know, whether I was at a junior college, whether I was at NAIA, I kind of had to wait for the kids who thought they were like D1, right? And then D2. And then maybe they'd look at an NAIA or JUCO or whatever. So it it was kind of like a pecking order. Now that I'm at DH, um, I don't really have to wait anymore. There's kids flooding us every day for scholarships, you know, or or just the opportunity to be a part of the team. The budget is different. Uh, The makeup of the conference is different. Um, But also being in LA, I mean, I'm in the mecca of soccer you know yeah. on the west coast i mean i could i could throw a rock any which way and hit 50 players that could play for us so know? that that's interesting because my next question to you was when when you have that much people you know knocking at the door looking to come at least walk on or whatever it may be how does the coach staff look at the scholarship portion of it like let's say you only have five four rides right how do you split that amongst 22 players right and what goes into, I guess, decision-making into who is going to get an offer, right? Who's going to get a portion of those six, five scholarships? 
um, even if it's a little bit, right? Because then you have other people that can play for free, right? So that could kind of be an issue when it comes to, you know, handling that. So talk to well, us a little bit about that. Well, luckily, scholarship-wise, you know, we, we have a lot more scholarships here than I've ever had in any school I've ever been to in my previous tenure, you know. Um, but we also have a very good staff that we're all very selective. Um, in terms of recruiting, which is a major part of my, my part of the, of the responsibility, the pedigree of the league, how good every player is in the league, we, it's our job to find those type of players that... Top talent. To be fair, it, it's, it's very different than recruiting, say, even at an Eastern Oregon or somewhere else. We, yeah. Everybody wants the best talent, right? But everybody also needs to have a combination of different things. We need to find, just like I did at Eastern Oregon, good people, good students, guys that are blue-collar hard workers. But there is a level of, of um, skill that is required, too. The soccer IQ is very important. So when it comes down to measuring how much or if someone gets anything at all, to be fair, it's a little bit based on need, but it's also based on how high of a, of a ranking player you are. We have, we have a couple of players that are four-star athletes out of Got Soccer rankings, you know? So those guys are like nationally, we were nationally recruiting against D1 ACC schools. Actual badass players. Yeah, and we got them. I mean, we won, yeah. we got them. So I can't say that, and those kids warranted money, you know? Uh, but the nice thing about DH also is it's one of the most, it, California has such a high educational benefit when it comes to s schools like FAFSA, yeah, FAFSA and state funding and all this. Like, to be fair, like the JUCOs, for example, in California, they're Division Three. They don't play outside of California. They play strictly California. There's so many schools that play, but all those kids go for free. There's no scholarships because if you're on the team, it's free no matter what. So it's a free <laughs> program, right? And then at the same time, Dominguez is able to, we're, we're basically, in-state tuition is like 7,500 bucks, if not less. Right. So if you're oh, wow. FAFSA, if you're FAFSA, yeah. 6,000 or 7,000 bucks, you know, it's affordable. We don't really have to give much. Now we do reserve money for kids who are coming, maybe an international, maybe out of state, maybe they weren't, maybe they're that good that we have to get them, you know, and, but it's really up to the head coach, Eddie Soto, who's fantastic. And he's very, very fair. Um, and I also believe it, it's also about like, what do you bring to our team? You know, are you going to come in and are you a 2.2 student that's barely going to maybe hang on? Are you worth it? Mm, I don't know. Mm -hmm. If you're a you know, 3.8 student and you're coming in with you know, a lot of accolades and you show the quality you, of your work ethic, you probably warrant a little more money. And maybe, maybe you don't need it, but maybe we give you something, books or something else. You know? So there's a lot of ways to get around yeah. that. But um, it's also just it's, it's about the player and how much we do a lot of background checking on players, man. It's... I don't think players, um, I know from my previous experiences as a younger coach now, we do so much more fact-checking on players now than I ever did in the past. I think I was lucky a, a little bit at EOU because I think I just, I had a gut feeling about my kids and, you know, your class in particular because you were my first class. Um, I had a gut feeling and I... I really, oh, we didn't do too bad. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel that... I think I got really lucky, you know, yeah. where, you know, as I, as I moved on in this business and I start fact checking and I find things, ugh, it's, it's shocking about how many kids make that big of a mistake, which stops them from perhaps so signing for So you made some interesting points that I think, I guess, young athletes right now who are inspiring to make a college, you know, even degree or even playing college, even if it's community college, because you coach there at that level. Yep. Um, even parents, because parents listen to some of this as well. So, what would you recommend for, let's say, some high school players today that, 
you know, could be top stars, can are really good in their conference or whatever, and be in this small school. Look, I came from that community where I didn't really have a bigger brother who was gonna, you know, show me the way to make a college scholarship, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of these, I would say, Hispanic parents, you're Hispanic as well. Yeah, they don't have the money or funding to put them in top programs, top, you know, teams like Crossfire, like. Yeah. You know, Seattle, Seattle United, all these big clubs where they have the coaching, the people that have the experience coaching. We just play at the YMCA or play at the Mexican League, right? It's a different style of soccer when you get to a certain level. Mm-hmm. What would you say kids should focus on now? Because obviously the talent's there, but their mm-hmm. IQ sometimes doesn't match their level of play. I, I think a lot of things, the first thing that we notice, because in L.A., we go to Mexican League games. You know, we do yeah. the same thing in L.A. We don't go to always clubs, right? We... Yeah. I mean, we've had guys call us from the field and be like, hey, I saw this kid come down to, you know, whatever, downtown L.A., there's a Mexican League game, let's go. And we go. I think the difference is, um, and we ha- and my school in particular, we're that school that's known for its diversity, okay? Mm-hmm. We're known for taking the kids that may not have an opportunity at other schools to come in, and you walk down the main, the main drag of our college, and all the kids look like you. You know what I mean? They look like each other. They're not like, it's not like you're going to a UCLA. You know what I mean? You're, you're, in a, you're in a place where you feel really comfortable. And I loved it. I loved it because in some of the previous schools I've been to, I can't really say that I've seen a lot of diversity, right? Yeah. So when it comes to diversity and, and answering your question, the, the biggest key to those kids is how your habits, the habits that you create. You might be a really, really good soccer player, but unfortunately... We can't bring you in if you can't read or write. We can't bring you in if you don't take your studies seriously. You know, a 2.5 GPA is not that difficult. But your habits and making time for your studies is. Unfortunately, in the last couple of years, we've seen kids who we bring in from an academy, right? An academy or other players who are highly talented who cannot do the schoolwork. And it's not that they can't do the schoolwork. It's that they don't make time to do the schoolwork. So we set them up with tutors and help and hand over fist at our school. I'm going to be honest with you, you cannot flail our school unless you do nothing. And some <laughs> of these kids chose to do nothing. So unfortunately, we can't help you. So now you've got to start your road. Imagine going to college for one year and going to zero classes, doing zero work, and you were on a scholarship. Okay? We have kids who've done that, and now they're ineligible at any school because now they have to go back and get a certain number of credits just to be eligible at another school and they'll never get FAFSA again because they're on probation. So, yeah. I mean, a lot of these things play out when a kid says, I'm good enough to go play at a DH or I'm good enough to go play at a, a University of Portland or whatever. If you don't have the grades, we can't, we can't use you. We can't use you, you know? So, unfortunately, I think a lot of it has to do with your... And, and here's the big thing. I've never met a family of diversity that doesn't want something better for their kids than what they have, right? Parents, right? And I think it's really important for kids to understand that just because you have a C average in your high school doesn't mean that C average is going to get you into our college or anywhere else. And then the other thing is, too, is like there's the NCAA regulations and eligibility, and then there's Mm -hmm. the academic standards of a school to get in. Our NCAA eligibility is different than what it just takes to get into DH. There's two different standards, and you have to be able to know those things, you know. And I think it's unfortunate that so many kids wait till like, their junior year or their senior years to look at it when they should have been taking certain classes to be NCAA-eligible freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year. And if you fail a class, it's okay. 
just fix it before you get out. Yeah. You know? And I think, again, it's not a, and like what you said, I understand that a lot of kids don't have a brother or don't have perhaps the parents that understand the college system. But I think it's important that they utilize their counselors, their school counselors. Resources, yeah. Yeah, and utilize the resources because everybody has a dream and a path, but it's going to take patience to get there and do what you're supposed to do. I, don't, I think people sometimes forget that it's, there's no easy road. There's no such thing. I mean, sure, you could be a top you know, 3% or schools are all over you and all that, but trust me, those kids have struggles as well. It, it's interesting because I train soccer players now even in Tucson as well. And I see the same trend that happens in Pasco when I was living there and training athletes. Mm -hmm. The talent is there. The kids are good. They're good at, you know, they play all the time. But they just, I don't know if it's, um, if they think they're too good or if they, they just plainly suck at school, really. Um, it's, either, it's either or. Because I feel like some of them are pressured to work. Some of them are pressured to go to school. But again, they can't get into the schools that they want to play at, right? And a lot of them are shooting high at, you know, even FC Tucson, you know, playing at the local clubs, a professional when they should probably start getting developed through college sometimes because it, it prepares you a little bit better. Um, so for all you, you know, maybe seniors right now, juniors that are listening in, listen to what Stan is saying. He's coaching at a good school, so he can give you insights into what they look for uh, and stuff like that. So Stan, I have another question for you. So Let's say you have, and you got you recruited a bunch of us that already had played two years, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit different from recruiting wise, right? So when you go after or looking at kids that completed their two year community college or JUCO college, and they're looking to play maybe at the next level at a university, what what is something that you kind of see in those athletes uh, in particular compared to maybe a freshman in high school, right? It's completely I, different. I think that you know, and we do a pretty good split of those kids in our conference and other places as well. Um, let me go back to the Arizona piece, though. You know, this is more for the kids in Arizona. I think in Arizona, you guys are so lucky because you have, you only have one D1 college, uh, GCU, that does mm -hmm. men's soccer, but you have so many really, really good community colleges there. That conference is... Pima? Pima so Community College is the one in Tucson. Well, yeah, yeah, Pima. I mean, Pima's great. I mean, you have, obviously, yeah, the, you know, Fairytale Yavapai up there. I mean, you've got so many great schools. You know, you got you know, PC, I mean, you've got a lot of schools uh, that are wonderful schools that we go recruit at. I mean, those are places that we go recruit. We, you know, we're always really connected to Arizona. The other thing too, is that, you know, when you do, you even have NAIA schools, you know, you have Arizona Western. I mean, you have, oh, that's a JUCO, but you have like St. Uh, Benedictine, I think. And you have, I mean, you just have Ottawa, you have so many schools there. In Arizona, you should be able to play at least two years, somewhere, somewhere. They have a, they have academies here too, which a lot of them I've noticed because I played Mexican league here where a lot of them were playing the, the Real Salt Lake Academy. Yeah. And that's kind of all they're shooting for because some of these kids made it and now they're playing at an actual Salt Lake and those, yeah. those academies, these academies. So a lot of them are not even thinking college. They're thinking of like, well, I'm looking just to get out of Tucson and go play at Salt Lake because they could develop them there. But again, it costs money. You got to be really good, right? I, so, think, I think a lot of those things are, again, I, I think some of those, for those kids that benefit from that, I think it's real positive. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important that kids, again, look for your education first. And in Arizona, there's not a real need to, there's not a real need to, you know, the, the, the schools have money. There's ways to get into junior colleges. There's ways to find help. I mean, I think it's really important that 
that kids just look at all avenues, you know, and there's not only junior colleges in Arizona, there's the, the national junior college system versus like the one you played in up here in the NWACs, the national JUCO is very different. There's tons of schools that have budgets and money and you'd be surprised how fast some of those schools will swoop up an Arizona player because they know they're good. Anybody from the West Coast and that region four area really has a, a leg up because of the experience you have. You know, I've seen kids who were third stringers on a, on a team in Cali or Arizona go start at a junior college because they just have that experience, you know, yeah. and it just was their time. So, but back to, you know, the other question, you know, recruiting a, a junior college kid. For me personally, I think junior college is a really important system because I went that system. And I think it's important also because you've shown that you can complete two years of college level work or courses. If you have an AA, not only are you guaranteed entry into probably the college you're gonna choose, but with NCAA rules and stuff, uh, more so for the D2 and below level, mm -hmm. you are more likely, you know, you're more affordable for that college as well. I could see a school giving you money or some money. There's no such thing as full rides, by the way, unless you're really special, okay? But most of the time, they'll give you some sort of money um, and you're more affordable for two years than you would be for four years. So. I also feel like out of your own pocket, if you're paying for school yourself, instead of going to a four-year school and racking up all these loans, and you may not be good enough to, to get on the field, you might be on the, on the second squad for your first two years, go to a JUCO, work really hard, save your money, get a job, play on the team and work really hard and stay mature, stay focused, stay in shape, and then test the waters to get recruited to another school when you when you're going to finish two more years and I, and again i've coached at you know the nwacs i've coached at the national junior college level i've coached at naia i've coached now at the ncaa's i mean wherever you go to school if you're willing to, to do the work you're going to benefit because at the end of the day it's your degree it's your degree yeah. it's it's not anybody else's and people can't take that away from you i think kids get so hung up on the levels and the competition i mean listen if you go to a school and you're one in 12 and you graduate, your job interview, no one's gonna say, hey, you went to that school that was one in 12, I can't hire you, <laughs> you know? They're, yeah. gonna, they're probably most likely gonna hire you because you were a student athlete and you understand what it's like to work on a team and be a part of a program and you understand, you know, just, just social atmosphere. I think again, kids forget about having, how to be social and how to be in an environment where you have to talk and listen and learn and, and then maybe, do the work yourself i mean really it's what it is right like yeah. it, the maturity comes at a later time you know when i coached women versus men the maturity for the women was far you know greater than the men at the same ages you know the women understood now were they always the best teammates just like guys no but yeah. they understood <laughs> that they understood the system right and i think yeah. again when i go recruit a junior college kid i expect a certain level of maturity understanding and you know, just the idea of just know that sometimes something's not going to go your way and you handle yeah. it. Where if you bring a freshman in, <clears throat> and I can't tell you how many freshmen I've had that were like, I should be starting. I should be playing. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. I was this in high school. I was this on my club team. It's not the same. It's not the same, man. It's, you're, you're, you're not. You're, you're just, you don't, you're just not there yet. And it's, I know exactly what you're talking about because I, and listen for all the listeners that, are contemplating going to a JUCO because it's a smaller school. I actually went to Walla Walla at the time where Chad Bonner was a coach, and that program was stellar. If you're talking about, you know, top 
you know, uh, NWAC team. It was either Peninsula or Wall Wall at the time. They're looking for a coach right now. Yeah, and um, I couldn't tell you. I, I, I went on the class. that we, we lost the NWACs that year, so I lost the championship for, for that program that year, my freshman year. But I didn't, I didn't get to play kind of towards the end of the season because, again, they were developing a lot of those freshmen um, to be able to compete at that level because, again, I was playing in a top team. And even though I was probably good in high school at the time or whatever, a lot of my other teammates that they recruited from that same conference, we didn't really get to play up until, you know, halfway through the season or even more when we started kind of picking up those cues of, you know, when to work hard, when to rest, all these other things that come into play as you develop. But yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a great point there. So you mentioned the females a little bit uh, compared to the men. But um, what would you say you like more as far as coaching? Ooh, I mean, I, I think they both come with like massive upsides, but um, I, I think because soccer is, is a, there's a lot more sport, soccer, women's soccer teams in the college level for different reasons, for Title mm-hmm. IX, all these things. And funding is different for women at the college level because they supply more scholarships to them and things like that. I think it's faster to build if you're a good recruiter and you're, you know, a viable program, things like that, if, you, if you've shown some real care, I think you can grow a women's program a little faster. I don't, but a boys program, you know, it's different. I used to say that with women, if you teach them, you know, a little bit more of the, 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 the machismo of what men have and you teach the men the finesse of what the women have, I think you can produce some really good teams on, on both sides. So, yeah. You know, I, I'm not afraid of coaching. I, I coach the genders, you know, yeah, pretty much the same. I mean, in some cases, maybe I push the women a little harder, I think, just because I expect more. Um, but I, I, I like them both. I mean, I think they're both really strong. I mean, look at the women's side and the national team, you know, at the national level. I mean, you don't have to go recruit a nas- you know, internationals to compete at the women's level in college because the best players are here. You know, we have the best yeah. players in, in the nation. I mean, in the world here. I mean, do you uh, do you think it's an ego thing for the men, though? Like they think they're better than one another. I mean, I think women are like that, too. I think I think when you find a good competitive group of women, I mean, I went to North University, of North Carolina one year uh, for a camp and I went down there to help. And I I was blown away at how competitive every single one of those women were. And they weren't just they weren't not, they weren't like nice. They were like they were aggressive and it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't anything that I was used to in the environment that I came out of. And I, I saw how healthy it also was and how well it, pro- what it produced, right. The production of, of top athletes yeah. and people who it's, it's the real world, you know, it's the real it, world. At least, yeah. It leads me to my next question though, could because soccer obviously is different in diff- different regions of the country. Mm-hmm. What would you say is like the major difference between the, the obviously the East coast compared to the West coast? Because again, I think they're more aggressive in the in the in the East Coast. When you get those Italians, when you get those Portuguese, when you get the it's, Europeans, it, it's definitely a, a bigger melting pot in the East Coast. Uh, a big melting pot, but yeah. the style of play is is sometimes I feel like I call it the Mourinho style. Right? They they don't care what it looks like as long as it gets results. And yeah. in the, in their mind, they're you know if they're going to be brutal, they're going to be brutal and. If you look at also the the success at the at the at the youth levels, right? Say say nationals up to U nineteen, right? If mm-hmm. you look at the 16, 17, 18s, both genders, you see a lot of winners coming from like Michigan, and then maybe a couple from Florida, and then things like that. Like there's different areas that are really strong. Texas, right? Texas is crazy. 
But then you see in some of the younger levels, depending on the gender, you see, you know, 14s, 15s, you know, maybe a little younger, West Coast, and maybe Seattle. Around, you know, <laughs> Seattle. Yeah, maybe you see a team from out there. The consistency is what's scary, right? Because so once you have a national level team like that, those kids don't stay. They get swooped up by academies or somewhere else. So you don't see those teams stick together anymore like you used to. Also, because, again, there's so much different, so many different programs, a lot of things have watered down, right? So you don't see the top level kids at like a Seattle United anymore. You see them at a Sounders Academy or a Timbers yeah. Academy, which rightfully so, they should be, right? Um, but yeah, the styles from West Coast to East Coast, really different, but the special players are always the same. Yeah, You, know, you always see special players. On the West Coast, I, I can tell you right now, I can drive around you know, 10 miles away from my conference or my school and I can find a really great center mid. I can find a really great you know, right mid. I can find attacking players all day. The, the, t the tough players to find that are really at those elite levels are, are a nine, uh, you know, a striker, uh, a left-footed center back. Um, you know, there's a lot of differences uh, in terms of specialty positions, like specialty players that you can find, yeah. you know, different parts of the country that you may not be able to find in, in say, like an Oregon or a Washington. You know, the ones weather, that will make a difference. <laughs> yeah, weather plays a factor, man. Weather plays yeah. a factor. You have kids like Arizona that these guys can play all year long, all year all round. Yeah, so. and and and. So it's just different, you know, but at the same time, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's where you can find players that just fit the system of the school and the coaches and how they coach them. And, you know, the, I've seen schools that look like they have like real football teams size wise, you know, their guys are six, three and they're massive and they're big mm -hmm. and they push you around. And then I've seen other schools that have kids that are no bigger than, you know, they, if they have a six footer, it's the goalie. Everybody else is quick and fast and technical. I mean, there's schools in our conference that, I mean, they play, they play in such a, a way that it's it's really it's even me as an opponent i'm just like wow man that's that's some really good play at versus other schools at higher levels that i've watched even as even as of late that i'm like what are they doing like, <laughs> what like is that their only is that their only advantage you know so i mean i think it's to each his own you know to each his yeah own. but the, the, the bottom line is there's talent and i do think there's more talent on the women's side just anywhere than there is on the men's side per se but you know it's tough athleticism you can't substitute athleticism, you know, you can't substitute certain things. You just have to kind of work with what you got and hope you, you get one that sticks, you know. Yeah, I, I brought that question up because when I was playing um, club, when I was younger, U18, U19, we went to a national tournament and we got spanked by a New Jersey team full of like Italians and Portuguese people. And I'm like, what are these guys? Like These guys are like twice our size, fast, big, strong. And this was in Ida Boise, Idaho at the time, I think. And that just, I that's why I asked. I was like, it's way different. That, this is my first time experiencing, you know, other states playing against other, other states, really, in players. When I moved to New York, I actually thought, I was like, I'm not a bad player. I'll be all right. I'm good. I'll jump in here, whatever. And I, I went and played on a U19 team first, out of, and they were all mixed up kids from New York. Uh, and they were, I mean, there was kids that were two years younger than me that were just leaps and bounds better i mean they were good they were just killing it and I, I i really did not feel i couldn't play their style there's no way yeah and then later on when i jumped in that men's league um i mean my first foul that i had against me it, i have like flashbacks because i remember <laughs> i didn't even see the guy coming i picked my a, a player a, a player of my a teammate picked me up out of the dirt and shook me and my feet were just dangling and i just felt dirt and grit in my teeth and he's like you got to play the game and he's yelling at me Mm -hmm. And we had guys on the team that didn't even speak English. And we had a guy, uh, we had a guy, a center back from Paraguay. And I don't even know his real name. His name was, they called him Fierro. They called him Steel. 
and he was the meanest man I've ever seen in my life, and he was brutal. And uh, it was a big learning experience for me because what was a foul on the West Coast was not a foul on the East Coast, and it was definitely definitely different. But it was fun. It was I was I was real lucky so to play those. I was having a conversation the other day with a coach from Boston who uh, been coached for like twenty years. He's kind of on the retired side now, but um, I was asking him a question in regards to because obviously he coached in like the the late eighties, nineties, um, and I asked him, you know, what the major differences, you know from that time when he was coaching youth youth soccer, like how does has that developed over time to like 2021? And obviously you've been coaching, you know, for a while too. What would you say are some of those, you know, big shifts into development maybe of, of youth athletes compared to maybe when we grew up or maybe when even you grew up, right? It's completely different. The soccer has evolved. The coaching has evolved. Um, what would you say are some of the major shifts in U.S. soccer? I, I think the major shifts is just, you know, not only the – the coaching education in terms of the, of the U.S. soccer levels, like there's a lot more coaching education now that takes takes precedent over a lot of things. Like you know, you start with the grassroots program before you can even get into the levels of like the the C, B, or A, right? So I think coaching education is is being pressed upon people more, which is good. I think is anytime you can get coaching help, coaching education. Um, I mean, I can remember the first coaching clinic I ever went to, and it was it was so it was so different than what I, I even experienced as a youth player coming up because there was things that I didn't notice. And then as coaching education has evolved, I think it has to do more with planning and having a, a full picture of what you see. I mean, there's a lot of coaches out there now that have never kicked a soccer ball, but they've gone through the coaching education and they're, they're proficient enough in paper and pen that they can put something together that, that is beneficial for the youth, right? I also think that Clubs are doing a really good job at putting their most experienced coaches coaching the youth, the, the, the seven, eight, nines versus the 15, 16, 17s, because now they're developing better habits and training, better focus, right? Um, the, and I also think sometimes the word development is, is kind of misused because, you know, coaches have a tendency to only develop players up to their best player, and then they forget about that best player needing to develop even higher, right? So yeah. you see kids who are Maybe they're bigger, stronger, faster than their kids their own age, and then they start getting, you know, size starts to catch up, and then that top player really becomes the third, fourth, fifth best player because those other kids that really worked on development or supposedly worked on development just happened to put click because they were getting taught things that player who already knew that at this age wasn't getting. So I, I think it's, it's really important to have the coaching education. I think that's first and foremost. Um, and then having a plan of what you are trying to do. And then what people really forget because I think parents, coaches, clubs, people that are, are built on results, mm -hmm. I think they forget sometimes to make it fun. You know, we don't, see, we don't see a lot of the top athletes stick with soccer. That might be the sport they start with, but then they go to the football or the baseball or the basketballs, and they forget the soccer even though they were that good at it for various reasons, right? So... I think a lot of times people forget that it's supposed to be fun too. You know, it's, it, it sucks to lose. Don't get me wrong, but mm -hmm. it would really suck if you just never got to play. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because the one thing I learned in school and I'm completing my master's in strength and conditioning. Um, one thing I learned about strength and conditioning and, and training athletes and looking at, I, I wouldn't say development, but you as a coach, and I don't know how much thought you put into this, but it could be a thought. Would you rather have a multi-sport athlete come into your team, like somebody that 
didn't play soccer all their life, maybe started with basketball to baseball, football, and then soccer kind of later on? Or would you have somebody who played soccer since six years old and all the way up until now compared to, to, like, to like college? Because obviously that development is different because from, from my experience, what I've noticed is most even football coaches and stuff like that rather have somebody who played a lot of sports growing up because their development in different movements, you know, jumping patterns, you know, shuffle spins are different compared to somebody who's just overusing the same muscle, same, you know, technique. I, I think when I coached the women's game, I think I was more partial to having a, a full all round athlete, someone who did three sports, someone who did other things. I mean, I even had uh, the top fencer in the United States. She, she was fencing. She was a sword fighter. Right? Oh, wow. She the Olympics. She played for me and she was phenomenal. She won a gold medal in the Olympics. Okay. So there's not a lot. I mean, she That's was insane. another, and eventually she went and stayed that route, which, you know, she's one of the best. In the world. <laughs> Go ahead. Right. Um, I think it was important to have, uh, especially for like the the ACLs and things like that for women. I think it's important that they do play other sports and develop other things, whether it's, and, and not just athletic sports, you know, dance, other things. It's, it's totally fine. Uh, men, I, I agree. I, I'll be honest with you. I would, I, most of my athletes, especially now in, in at DH, they're student athletes. There's very few that I think I have on the team that only played one sport. Everybody, yeah. everybody played something. Maybe they played high school. Maybe they played three sports in high school up until their sophomore year. And then they focused yeah. on one. But I mean, I really also think it's important for all kids in the younger ages to develop as many movements and skills as they have up until they decide to dedicate one sport. I mean, I played every sport until either a high school coach told me I wasn't good enough and I got cut or <laughs> I played part-time, you know, there's, I mean, I played on my junior college basketball team for God's sakes, you know, and I yeah. had a great time. And we, and then when I wasn't good enough to make the team anymore, I just played intramurals and I played everything. I played flag football and, you know, we always did everything because I think that's what's part of the, the notion that you have to like, you should enjoy everything your body can give you until it yeah. can give you no more. Right. And, you know, the other thing I know, I know to your, to your fitness stuff is I think it's also important for people who, who try, who are, who are athletes when they become non athletes anymore. And they, they get into this regular, you know, so-called life of whether it's nine to five or whatever you're doing, I'm coaching because I feel like coaching, I may not be in the perfect shape, but I'm definitely, and I might be round sometimes in some, some parts of the year and other <laughs> years I might be a little more fit, but it makes me feel young and it makes me stay, want to stay healthy. You know, it's hard. It's, it's hard when you get older and you feel like you can't do the things you used to be able to do. So I think part of this job for me was also trying to produce healthier physical bodies as well as trying to keep myself maybe internally healthier uh, versus outwardly healthier, you know? And I think it's important for, for the kids now to understand you might be able to run a mile in under five minutes and under six minutes. And that's great. But when you turn, 27 30. Years old, 30 years old let's see you run that same mile and not come up with a pulled hammy or a quad or something unless yeah. you've been active you know and it sucks when you can't pick up your kid at you know you're 35 years old and you go pick up your kid and you strain your back when you used to be able to dunk or whatever you used to be able to when you were you know 18 yeah. so I, I think it's important to, to, to kids not only think about the sport as in terms of, of competition but also to stay healthy and there's a long-term effect you know that you know and and I think coaches know that too. I mean, we all try to stay healthy for the fact that we want to continue to try to have some vitality and, you know, and some youth left and sport, sport of any matter gives us that ability to try to retain it. Yeah. I, I brought up the question about, you know, being specialized in one sport or playing multiple sport because I've made a video on this mm -hmm. and I think in my experience, and I, and I could probably speak for a lot of people that play soccer now, 
I, I mostly only played soccer just because my dad, that's all he knew. So he's like, well, I'm going to teach you how to play. So it stuck with me. And that's what I played. But I think when you have an athlete that starts at six, seven years old up until 2021, 20, playing that sport, they're going to peak too early in their career. That by the time they're 21, they've already peaked at 18, 19. And you actually need them to peak a little bit later in life, like when they're in senior year, junior year, because then it can get another shot at making it even a long-term career rather than them having overuse, maybe some injuries happen just because they've been playing for so long. I, I think I think as well, though, though, is like the hardest part for a lot of kids, especially when we go and recruit them, is in their mind, they've been a striker for their whole lives, right? Or they've mm-hmm. been a, a center mid their whole lives or whatever. At, once you jump to other levels, especially in college, when we recruit, we don't we might hear about you being a good striker. So maybe we go look at you to be a striker. But when we get there, we might realize you might be a great left back and we're going to make you a left back. You know, and there's a lot of and I, I did it more in the women's game than I did in the men's game where I wanted to convert players to other positions on the field. Some of the girls or some of the players I've done in that, too, in the past weren't very open to it until they realized, like, OK, it's not about you. It's about the team. If you want to be on the field, you'll learn to play this position because you, you have to adapt. Yeah. yeah. And or the question is, do you not want to play on the team and not be on the field? And that's OK, too. And I'll use you up front when I want to. You know, I mean, that- I've had players I've had players that I couldn't bench because they were too good for us. So I made another player change the position. And when that player graduated, then that player went to the front, you know, and it's fine. That's a but, great point. Yeah. But, but I think it's important that kids understand that when you're playing, you know, any any sport that whatever position gets you on that field and puts you in the limelight of the team environment, then you should be grateful that you're good enough in the coach's mind to put you there. And maybe on a Monday, you're really good. But by game day, maybe you didn't. We have a rule at school that you practice during the week. If you practice the night before the game is when we'll decide the starting lineup. But if you're on the bench to dress down, that shows that you did something during the week. Very seldomly have we ever taken a kid that didn't practice in that position during the week or whatever and started them at a different position in the game, right? But we also have had kids that said, hey, I had a really good week of practice and we don't think so. So unfortunately they're not dressing down for the game and you know, they're struggling. But it's just one of those things that you have to be consistent and you have to be on and you have to be adaptable and you have to be able to understand that not everything is always going to fit you, right? You have to fit the dynamics of the team. If it's an individual sport. The, the system like, too. Yeah, yeah. And if it's an individual sport like swimming or, or tennis or whatever, then great. Good for you. But if you're on a team environment, also the other thing too is like we might match up against somebody who we don't feel is comparable to you. So we want to put somebody, somebody else in that spot to protect the team and then maybe move you somewhere else or put you in when, when the game is, you know, a little bit, you know, looser or whatever the case may be. So I think sometimes just the adaptability. And I think when club coaches are building their programs and their teams, and I think club coaches, you know, are a true benefit to these kids. I think sometimes club coaches need to also give the kids the, the, the hard side of things and say, Hey, you may not be a striker at this level and train them in other positions. I, being pigeonholed in a position your whole life is not good for the development of a player either. Yeah, I mean, sure. Not every kid should be a goalkeeper. I'll be honest, you know, but at the same time, uh, you know, you can put kids in positions and make them grow. You know, for example, and on our youth clubs in L.A., the first kid that doesn't know how to tackle, we make them a center back. 
and we put them in the worst position. Which are forced to tackle. <laughs> force them to break those habits. To, because again, it, it's not me that's going to yell at them. It's going to be the goalkeeper, the right back, the left back, the center. You know, the guys are going to get on him and he's going to either have to grow from that position and get better or not be on the field. So, you know, it's one of those things where you force people to learn tough lessons and you hope they rise, right? And if they mess up that day, you give them another chance to rise again. But if they become just stubborn and say, I'm not doing this, then maybe they're not that. Yeah, not that's, a, that's an interesting point because when I first went to college to play at Walla Walla, I want to say like half of us played different positions in high school. And then when we got to, to college, they already had a team established, obviously, the, the yeah. previous team. And I remember playing, I was a right wing when I, or left wing when I started. Like I played wing when I never really played wing in high school or anything like that. And we had Giovanni Vasquez at the time too, who was mostly a forward in high school. And then he played like center back. Yeah. So it's like people just had to adapt. And, and I think it's important for high schoolers now, or even parents, if, if, if they get mad at the coaches for putting them in a position that they don't play, they have to understand that there's a reasoning behind it, right? Kind of like you mentioned. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, not just because he's good at whatever, right? So. Well, and the nice thing is, you know, to be fair, one of the reasons why I went to coach college is because I was tired having to justify myself to parents. And I was, having, yeah. I was tired. And when I was a DOC at a club, I was always, I mean, very seldomly that I have time to go run trainings because I always had to deal with parents thinking they, they knew more than what the coach did or at the time. And some parents had some really good, valid points, and I'll give it to them. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, are you going to go tell your Let kid's me coach. boss? Yeah, are you going to tell your parent. kid's boss when your kid's 25 that your kid shouldn't be doing this yeah. work? And, you know, it's not, it's not reality, you know. And, but, you know, that's kind of our job. I think that's important that when parents are – taking their kids to teams or practices and you know that the kids are able to develop under whatever the coach is trying to do and then yeah. if the parent wants to try to develop them themselves somewhere else okay but don't don't contradict what the kid's trying to learn because it's the most confusing and painful thing when you're trying to you know coach a kid and they don't want to make make their parents upset because they're not listening to what the parents are saying you know and i think the nice thing about covid is that it stopped parents from being on the field uh, in some of these tournaments, just and let them play. Yeah, the coaches just coach and play, and the referees just ref, and they don't have to hear parents. And I think that's a benefit in a lot of cases because, um, you know, that's one of those younger younger teams, right? Yeah, man, it's it's brutal. You know, it's sometimes I, we we go to games to watch kids, and you know, here's something that you can tell the parents in your in your program that there's a lot of times that we'll go to games and we won't wear our DH stuff, we won't wear our college stuff, we just walk in as, with regular clothes and we sit down. There are kids that we do not recruit because we see their behavior of their parents right on the stands or in the field and how they are treating or saying and what they're saying about the coach, the team, individual players. And we just pack our stuff and leave. And we don't call those kids anymore. You know, we parents, if you're listening to this, don't be that parent. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's, it's scary, man. It's one of those things where you, you just kind of roll your eyes and and i'll be honest with you like i'm a parent too have i been guilty of those same things at times sure. yeah i mean absolutely it's an emotional thing and sometimes you're trying to live your life through your kids and it's just not going to be that way right it's just not but it's 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 a tough it's a tough deal man and again you know i've also gone to tournaments where i see club coaches and i've been one of those guys that just lose it on the sideline and get on a kid but Sometimes I think there's a benefit to that because a kid shows a little bit of thick skin and rides it out, you know, and can handle it. So, I mean. Lesson learned. Yeah, sometimes you just have to know. But parents definitely sometimes play a factor, especially like, for example, emails. 
I can't tell you how many parents email for the kids and I can't tell you how many parents, you know, try to dummy it up and it's just, it, we delete those emails immediately. You know, we don't even look at those emails. For kids. It's, it's <laughs> well, tell you funny. what, you ain't going to get it from the Hispanics that are, don't have email. So, <laughs> but Stan, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, man. I appreciate uh, it. Pre- thank appreciate you. all the insight. Hopefully people who listen, learn something from the coach. Yeah, man. It's good to and see you. Too. Good to see what you. to look for. Well. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. All right. Peace. Peace out.